0: The film that opened last weekend, Robert Eggers, The Northman. And I'll let you sum this up.
1: It's Hamlet. Is Hamlet with Vikings. Yeah,
0: you son of a bitch. <laughs> like, uh, uh, I have to explain like the whole world building of a sci-fi conceit. Like, you know, and then you're just like, yeah, have you seen The Lion King? It's that, but super violent. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster from San
1: Diego, California. and You are Cassidy Robinson. You are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. Yes. And as
0: of what, two days ago, we are no longer on Twitter. I'm not, but I think you still are.
1: I, so I still technically have my account but I'm, I'm trying to wean myself off of it. So I deleted the app, uh-huh. which is uh, how I got off of Facebook. So Cause technically my Facebook is still active as well. Mm-hmm. But if I don't have the app, I've randomly scrolled some stuff, but I'm also like, okay, just don't tweet. If I don't tweet, then I won't check it. <laughs> so after I deleted the app, I logged in, just cause you know, I'm slowly weaning off. Got like super rage mad after I saw the same old fucking argument about canceling student debt from this, you know,
0: from the same boomers,
1: just the same people saying the same stuff. It's just like this cyclical rage. Like that's what Twitter is built on. Also, you know, the elephant in the room is we both got off of it because of the story about Elon Musk buying purchasing it it. Yeah. Well, I mean, Which, technically he hasn't bought it yet. Um,
0: right. I mean, it, it looks like it's definitely going to happen. I mean, uh, what's his name? Jack Dorsey, the original owner, um, the original CEO, basically wrote a whole thing about how it was like the right, the right way to go oh, and I, I how he feels too, about it.
1: There's also a lot of legal battles. He still has to go through. To Like he won't be able to purchase it until I think it's like the end of summer that it would take effect.
0: I'm fine with the uh, the rage baiting and and um, the terrible takes and all of well, that. That's it's kind of what Twitter's for. Yeah, I've, uh, I've also but- gotten good at just muting people. Like if I if I started a uh, like I'm like going over my character limit with like <laughs> something that I'm I'm arguing with the person I don't even follow because yes. they just happen to be on my thing. I'm just like, rather than do this, I'm just going to mute this person because they're clearly annoying and stupid. And I shouldn't have even seen this in the first place.
1: Yeah, that that was another thing for me. I,
0: (laughs) But no, for me specifically, I I don't like this particular billionaire and I don't I don't like the reasons he's doing it. It's not just that he's. Wants to be even more rich. Um, I think he might be the richest person now. Who knows who's keeping he, he up is. anymore? He,
1: but he has almost double what Jeff Bezos has now. He, it's insane.
0: Yeah. So he, it's not could, just that. It to me, it's the fact that he specifically bought it to troll. Yeah. And he specifically bought it because he wants to basically change it into a one one of these like grifty quote-unquote free speech apps, which basically means it's going to become 4chan in like five months.
1: Yeah, it's good. I mean, it's already got a Nazi problem, and this yeah. is not going to make that better.
0: Right. So, But I, you know, I put my money where my mouth was, and I deleted my account. So as far as I know, I don't have the followers anymore. I don't have anything. Maybe it reactivates as soon as you decide to change your mind.
1: But I, I, I think you have like a window. Like a two month window or something like that. I I don't know. You'd have to look into it if you're interested Um, or, you know, just. Or don't.
0: All this is to say, I still lurk on the uh, the MacGuffin pods Twitter, which is how I knew that you were still tweeting. Uh, And if anybody uh, has to contact me for whatever reason, you're going to have to do so at that account. But I'm not going to be tweeting from it as freely anymore um, because. You know, specifically, I just use that account to promote the podcast, talk to other podcasts, and I don't even follow, like, 98% of what I followed on my personal account. Yeah. It's mostly just film Twitter.
1: That well, is that, and I mean, there. that's what it should be, because, you know, it is right. a, It is a branded account. Uh, you know, it, it represents right. the MacGuffin brand. It, it, it
0: and honestly, the- I was never
1: on it enough. I would go
0: on on Monday to, to blast out the... uh episodes and stuff but then i would leave and so maybe if i'm putting as much effort into that account as i did my personal one it might actually grow
1: yeah maybe maybe
0: maybe who cares but today what we are talking about officially uh the reviews we're going to be covering everything everywhere all at once Mm -hmm. and the northman
1: that's right. It's a d- 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 double feature.
0: Yes. And for the streaming homework, we're going to be covering your assignment, uh, Dirty Harry, which is available now on HBO Max.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, we were uh, we were discussing, I think, before you were recording about your flirting with the idea of canceling Netflix. And one of the, the issues with Netflix is they don't have a lot of, you know, it's mostly just Netflix original content. For my money, I think uh, HBO Max is, to me, seems to have like one of the best selections of old movies, of like real movies.
0: Yeah. Hulu's not too bad either. Um, Yeah,
1: they're, I don't like their interface as much. Um, No, I mean, Hulu's always been bulky and weird, but they kind of bury stuff a little bit more. So it's harder for me to. Just kind of find stuff, but um,
0: right. Cause the Hulu is always their brand has always been television for the most yeah. part,
1: and uh, you know,
0: updating that and keeping people in the loop on what's um broadcasting, but they have a pretty good movie selection. If you're looking, probably as of now, Netflix of the mainstream services is probably the worst yeah. for um catalog titles, you yeah, know, outside I- of their original. Netflix originals or the stuff that they purchase.
1: I think it it absolutely is. And it's one of the ones that I, I kind of log in and check the least anymore.
0: Yeah. Every once in a while, they'll have like a good month where mm-hmm. you're like, oh, shit, there's actually stuff I wanted to watch on this now. Yeah. But then by the time I remember again, it's all back to baking shows and serial killer docs. Mm-hmm. Is
1: there a true crime baking show? I'm sure there is. Okay, hear us out, Netflix. You have to bake uh, a meal themed after a true crime of the week. Right.
0: So it'd be like my favorite murder meets when TLC used to do the dinner in a
1: movie special. Yeah, but just like completely tasty. So as they're like
0: cracking the eggs and whisking and stuff, they're talking about like H.H. Holmes, (laughs) like
1: killing people in his murder hotel. You know, Greg, you just cracked that egg the same way that Notorious Serial Killer cracked this college student's skull. (laughs) Right. And it'd
0: probably be about as tactful, too.
1: Yeah. And it'd probably do really well.
0: Mm -hmm. All right. Let's go ahead and get into the first movie. Uh, We don't have a pre-review segment because uh, we're doing two movies. I guess we'll start with Everything Everywhere. Sure. Sure. Basically, this is a movie about a middle-aged Chinese immigrant uh, played by Michelle Yeoh. Her name is Evelyn Wang. Um, she's married to uh, Wayman Wang, uh, played by uh, Kiyu Kwan, um, who people may recall uh, as Data slash Short Round mm-hmm. from Indiana Jones and the Goonies and yeah, ch- child star of the eighties. Yes. And they run a a laundromat in the inner city and their daughter is coming back to visit with her girlfriend. She's sort of recently come out, um, which we see we're sort of on the other side of that situation now. But we kind of gather from context clues that it might have been a tumultuous time in their relationship. And there's still a little bit of strain there.
1: Yeah, there's Um, some. But they're trying to
0: get to a place of comfort and understanding. Um, but it's still, you know, sort of a uh, walking on eggshells type of type of situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's played by uh, Jeff uh, Stephanie Sue. Her name is Joy, and um, as well as their grandfather, played by James Hong, is coming into town, and so that adds like an extra layer of pressure because he doesn't know yet. And da 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 da. In the middle of all this, they also have to do their taxes for their laundromat. And there's a bit of a language barrier uh, when they go into the IRS building to speak with their tax lady played by Jamie Lee Curtis, almost unrecognizable in this role. In the middle of this argument they're getting into about the taxes and, and some discrepancies, we see an alternate reality version of her husband sort of enter her mind space, uh, Michelle Yeoh's mind space, and is able to sort of communicate and let her know that there are multiple universes um, in which there are different outcomes for different decisions she made along the way in her life. And in order to save the universe or, or to save these potential universes from collapsing in on each other, she has to confront a version of her daughter that has become something of like a Scarlet Witch reality, super powerful
1: entity, dark entity. Yeah.
0: That seems to be at the same time has the emotional memories of her daughter that might be motivating her, her behavior, but also sort of possessed by something else altogether. So from here, she uses these little Bluetooth devices that, the alternate reality version of her husband gives her to sort of click in, in and out of all these different realities in which we see different versions of her um, play out, you know, these different key moments in her life um, where if she had changed a decision here or there. And or she specifically
1: could've... she clicks in and out to, because she can gain the skills uh, that, that they, these multiple universes had. So you know, yes. like one of them is a, a martial arts movie star. So she can tap into that and she learns Kung Fu.
0: Yeah. Very Matrix-like in that sense. Um, yeah. It, it's kind of playing with the idea. You can sort of just upload new skill sets along the way. Um, if she visits these these uh, different versions of herself in these different realities, she becomes stronger and more formidable when she finally has to go toe-to-toe with this this dark entity that's, Uh, created something like a black hole Um, so that's the simplified version of what's happening believe it or not Um, (laughs) uh, you know there's a there's a lot of uh, details along the way Uh, what did you what did you think of this one
1: okay so I, i guess
0: we should probably say off the top that this is the directed by uh dan kwan And uh, Daniel uh, Scheinart, who are the same people who directed um, Swiss Army Man, and they come from sort of the music video and advertising world, um, and they're collectively known as the Daniels.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Um, We talked about uh, Swiss Army Man a while back as a streaming homework um, in which they kind of play around with with humor and and uh serious narrative and absurdism and surrealism and in in body humor and all these kind of things we sort of see in this movie but here to a much bigger broader extent
1: for my money a much more effective and precise effect um mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's literally all in the title this movie is everything everywhere all at once like There is so much happening, but I think that the Daniels, I mean, I, I loved this movie. I think it's incredible. I, I think the way they are able to balance tone and story and uh, the emotional core of this movie is incredible. I mean, it, Just from your description of it, it would be so easy, I think, to sit down in a movie like this and be just like completely lost and be like, what the fuck? And have it all be exposition and boring sci-fi jibber jabber. And, you know, in this, they kind of get that all out of the way pretty quickly. And then... I, I don't know. It's all kind of centered around these characters and these um, you know, emotional crises that they're going through mm-hmm. uh in a way that is extremely my jam.
0: Yes. Uh that was sort of my takeaway too. Um, you know, going into the movie, there was so much hype out there. This has been out for a little while, but mm-hmm. it's sort of trickling out, you know, it started in the larger cities and now it's kind of reaching out um further. And more people are catching up with it. And the consensus, it seems to be, this is the best movie I've ever seen in my entire life, which is a lot to walk into a movie theater with, you know?
1: Yeah. uh, I I mean, you know, it, (laughs) I, I don't think it's that crazy to have something uh, uh, akin to a religious experience with this movie. Like, (laughs) Well, uh, it checks a lot of boxes. It checks a lot of boxes, there's- and it, and
0: does so successfully. And and I think that there's there's a lot of movies that can do one or two things really well. Like say you going to see a Fast and Furious movie, they yeah. do the hell out of you know big explodey set pieces, and they can make them exciting, but at the end of the day, do you really remember the plots from six, seven and eight, nine and 10?
1: Yeah. It's like, like there's the one with the submarine and there's the one where uh, Dom becomes a car elemental. And I think that's the same one, even I'm not sure.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. After, I think the fifth one, they start to run in together a little bit. So they do that really well. And there's lots of like indie dramas that cover this sort of like territory, like familial stuff. And, you know, Certain people respond to those movies a lot. I, and, you know, I loved Lady Bird. That was my favorite movie that year. And that has mm. a similar kind of mother-daughter strained relationship thing. Although well, more it, from the daughter's perspective. And that that, kind
1: of it, but it's also coupled with this, you know, immigrant story. And it's also, uh, right. yeah, you so know, it, there's this... That uh, changes the out, context. Uh, gay story going right. on with it. There's this... Uh, there's so many grounding points for this movie. Like it's so specific that it can't help, but feel real and lived in at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And that allows for them to kind of go crazy. Right. Like, I think that's one of the problems I had with Swiss army man was there was so much absurdity and so much, um, it was like you couldn't really tell what was metaphor and what was literally happening. And this, I feel like they they dealt with those issues a lot better. It's so grounded up top that when it wants to go crazy, it goes crazy. But it, it's also like everything somehow tops the thing that came before it like uh you know some action sequences and some set pieces that kind of escalate right and after the first one uh the, you know the one with the fanny pack yeah which is incredible absolutely incredible um it, it kind of feels like oh okay well that's the fun sort of action sequence you know where are they going to go from here and then they top it and then they somehow get crazier and then they somehow top that and it, it's kind of mind-boggling the way this movie unfolds the way it kind of op- continues to open up more and more and more into bigger concepts and bigger ideas.
0: Yeah, I think um narratively you know if you're comparing this to Swiss Army man which I didn't love.
1: Yeah, um, it was it kind of shut me out a little bit as well.
0: Yeah, I mean I again I thought it was it was creative kind of and I I was interested to see where they would go as a as a uh, filmmaking duo because they, ha- yeah, they obviously it, it, have
1: like a vision. It felt more idiosyncratic than anything else.
0: Yes, and I felt a, a lot of the absurdity sort of choked out the emotional core. Even though they were trying for that, yeah. I felt like I, I can't deal with like the farting and the burping and the puking for like an hour and a half for 10 minutes of emotional payoff. Yeah, um, exactly. Whereas this movie actually kind of does almost the opposite. It starts with all the natural stuff. Mm-hmm. In the first third, it says, okay, here's the situation. Here's all the characters you're going to know in this scenario. So, you know, keep everyone in mind because we're going to be visiting all these characters again in all these crazy different contexts. And then they sort of let the story get more and more wild Um as the narrative grows and grows and grows, and then sort of pulls it all back together in the third act. I mean, it, that's what impressed me the most about this movie was for all of its narrative tilt whirling it, the form never overcome the function of the yeah. story. Yeah. And it would be so easy to, like you said, to try and pull all of this off and either not hit you with the story stuff enough or not find the time to fit it where it can in between the set pieces or go too heavy on the naturalistic thing. And to the point where the absurd stuff doesn't quite fit like they, it it is like on the razor's edge of almost being too much of one or the other,
1: but yeah. it always stays on that line. It, it finds a balance. This is also, you know, it is. It is a longer movie. It's like two and a half hours long, or something. And this is one of the. You don't feel it. Well, this is one of the rare instances where I think they absolutely needed every second, too. Yeah. Uh, and they use every second, like like you said. It it it's paced very quickly and very like you don't feel it at all, and it's so kind of mind boggling, but simultaneously entertaining, and and funny. Oh, my God. Funny.
0: By there people are, who are not traditionally
1: comedians. There, you know. It's not even just that there's jokes in this movie. There are a couple of gags that are possibly my favorite of all time, <laughs> like that I've ever seen on screen. Uh, like even still, there's a couple things that just thinking about them make me like giggle. Sure, yeah. And I'm not going to say it, because I want people to experience that joy for themselves. Right. But and there well, were a couple moments when me and my wife, Ashley, were just dying of laughter.
0: Yes, and I, I was too. And and I think that the um one of the cool things about this conceit, this multiple reality thing, is they really get to have fun with genre. And because, you know, from from setup to setup or from reality to reality, they can kind of play around with different things. So sometimes it feels a little matrix ish at Mm -hmm. times, um, especially with the fight choreography. And like I said, them uploading the the skills as they go along and that kind of thing. And then, you know, there's some sequences in where she's basically playing herself Mm -hmm. as Michelle Yeoh that bring to mind, like uh, the romantic Wong Kar-wai films. Um, and it plays it very straight. Yeah. And then there's these scenes that are almost bordering on like sci-fi horror. And, yeah. and because of the way they, they plan this out, they can, they can do these shifts on a dime and it, you, it never loses you or like it didn't lose me.
1: Yeah, exactly. I, uh, it, it's, it's just incredible, like how much they were able to put into this movie. I I think uh, after we came out of it, my biggest complaint was that I saw this before Doctor Strange, which is also supposed to be like a right. multiversal uh, epic. And I'm like, I don't I like they can't kind of top this, you know, Marvel with all of its money and all of its uh, special effects. You know, and I like the Marvel movies, but like you you get to experience everything
0: <laughs> right and it's it's deeply entertaining and I think that's the thing that's cool about it is that it's 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 well, unique yeah, it, and it's, it's of a taking piece. all
1: of these big ideas, all of these big concepts and putting it in like just the most digestible pop fun package you could imagine
0: right this was an a twenty four release, but it doesn't have that kind of tonal branding that I guess people associate with them.
1: You could maybe feel it a little bit at the beginning, but like, I think what? that was almost intentional, though. It's all, yeah.
0: not like they were saying, like, oh, let's make people feel like they're in an A24 film, but I think they were like, that's part of the conceit is like, we're taking these narrative traditions from all these different kinds of things, these pastiches, and we're, you know, sort of postmodernly juggling them and playing around with them
1: yeah exactly and uh just to i think amazing effect f- just to philosophically i don't know if i have found a movie that i jive with as hard as this just it's 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 view of uh, uh what i call optimistic nihilism okay i i just you know uh uh like one of the ideas that's sort of thrown around in this movie is is uh, that if the universe is kind of this big and and everything is possible and occurring all at once, then nothing matters because everything we do is so small and meaningless, and you know eventually we will all die in a big void of a black hole. And you know, I think there's some truth to that, but I also think that if That is the case. Uh, If nothing matters, then everything matters. Then, Mm -hmm. you know, every all you have is the moment you're living in. Right. And I just I don't know. I've never seen those ideas that I have sort of felt personally articulated so well in in pop culture before.
0: Right. It gets into the big picture through the, the lived experiences of these characters, which is what storytelling should do. Um, Yeah. You know, even the most simple storytelling, not that doesn't have to be this crazy, but um, I think they do it really well. And I, I think you could even read the movie if you wanted to, you could read the movie that, you know, these different scenarios that are playing out, you know, is, is basically this character, Evelyn kind of, Thinking about these different pivotal points in her life and how they could have, if I had done this, would this have happened? You know, sure. we all I do mean, that yeah, all it the time. Could,
1: it it could uh, it could all be a metaphor. lot more internally than than it is depicted as. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
0: and, and it it works either way. You could see it as this is a, like a literal like sci-fi action movie, or you could see this as like a big metaphor that mm. she's kind of playing out in real time. And and I think the ultimate takeaway is this kind of this idea of of empathy. And it's, we are who we are because of our experiences and, you know, not only caring for others and understanding where they're coming from, but also caring for yourself and giving yourself some slack because you're only the collection of your lived experiences. Totally,
1: yeah. It's in. It's an incredibly. It's a deeply empathetic movie. movie. Uh, it's and also like you know we've talked about how moving it is and how funny it is mm-hmm. and also like it has incredible action sequences.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, all it, it all pays off, uh, and I, you could tell that they they had fun uh, doing all that. You know, I I compared this a little bit. When I was watching it, I was kind of thinking of like, okay, this is—it feels kind of like that Charlie Kaufman-esque um, breaking the fourth wall. Everything goes, you know, kind of surrealism mm-hmm. meets the uh, action movie sensibility and the pop sensibility
1: of the earlier Edgar Wright movies. Totally, this is. Yeah, if you want an idea of what what this movie's vibe is. It's mm-hmm. eternal sunshine of the spotless mind meets Scott Pilgrim meets the matrix. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially. But, you know, yeah. but also that's very reductive. Like it's, yeah. it is very much its own thing.
0: Yeah. But if you kind of want an idea of what you're getting well, into, what yeah. you're getting into as far as that. And, and I think, you know, it does all of the things that it's doing and while moving very quickly and you pick up all of this stuff, all the themes, very rarely from the characters saying it out loud. Like you, yeah. this, this is all accumulated through the actions of, of the characters, which is just good writing.
1: Absolutely. I, I loved this movie. I thought it was incredible.
0: I did too. Um, I gave an, I give it an A. What are, where are you feeling on
1: it? I give it an A plus. I think it pulled all of these things off. I, you know, I could grade it on a curve of, mm-hmm. of just sheer ambition, um, but I don't even need to because it's such a good movie. A A, a plus,
0: yeah. And you know, ambition isn't everything. No, you it's know, not. At the end of the day, you still have to succeed on a story level. And some movies, as ambitious as they are, you know, I, I think about like this compared to something like Tenant, a movie oh, that absolutely. I had a lot of respect for on a craft level, but it's a little icy you know I didn't feel a lot for anybody in that movie Um, whereas this one is just as complicated but I never felt like I was straining to understand it yeah it's, it's visually super dynamic and it, even it, though a lot of the action scenes are in like one location or something like that it doesn't feel small it feels feels like a a large experience.
1: No, and that's another uh, another thing I really like about this is um, generally a formula that usually works in comedy is taking taking the mundane and making it epic, mm-hmm. or taking the epic and making it mundane. Right. Right. Uh, and this kind of does both. Uh, does both. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Um, and everybody's great in it. Michelle Yeoh, this, I mean, she's been great for a long time, but this is like a great, like, sort of culmination of everything she's done up till now.
1: Yeah, she's fantastic. And it's so great to see her in a role that deserves her talent and mm-hmm. demands it.
0: She gets to be the demure, beautiful movie star, but she also gets to be the action hero. And she also gets to do. Comedic sight gags and, and uh you know, repartee with the other characters. And, you know, everybody gets to do everything in this movie.
1: But it's great. Yeah. yeah
0: I think Stephanie Sue as her daughter steals the show a lot of the time.
1: Yeah. Her outfits she's, are, she's definitely, are insane. Oh, my God. She is definitely an actress to watch, too. Yeah. Um, she's been in. Uh, uh, we've seen her in a couple of later seasons of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and she's great in that as well. Like she's definitely a rising star, right?
0: And it was great to see um, K. Hu Quan back. I guess yeah. you know, I looked at I looked into this a little bit, and I guess he had sort of quit acting through most of the '90s and early 2000s because he just couldn't find work um, as an adult Vietnamese person. There just wasn't a lot of roles written for that outside of, you know, probably bad character work in like uh, CSI type shit or whatever. Sure. Yeah. And so he just quit for a while. And then it was actually him seeing Crazy Rich Asians that inspired him to get back out there and, and see what he could do because he saw that there was now a market for Asian actors of a certain age
1: that's that's another thing about it you know we're talking about how great these roles are for these actors it's mm-hmm. also great to see uh, again I I talked about how just how specific this is with you know this Asian story and it's great to see when we talk about wanting diversity in movies this is what we're talking about you know
0: right and there's nothing about it that feels pandering or feels token it just feels like this is a story to tell with these characters
1: yeah it just feels really honest and great and then jamie
0: lee curtis i'm loving this like turn in her you know the, the later years of her life or where she's you know just decided to just go full head in on character work
1: totally like yeah. she
0: no longer you know, trying to be the romantic interest or trying to be like the star of the film or whatever. And I think she could do those things now if she wanted, but I like that. She's almost more interested in just doing these wackadoo characters. Well, and she is,
1: she's great at it. I mean, I agree. This is such a, a an exciting time to watch her career. Right. Um, to see her go from,
0: you know, her, even her like m- modern take on Laurie Strode is this like, gun nut survivalist.
1: Yeah. And then it's very much written as like a character part.
0: Right. Yeah. It's a way different. Well, it's more specific than she was in the seventies for sure.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, And then, you know, her, her character in knives out is this sort of like rich matriarch, really vamping it up. And then here as this bizarre, like, guess who character.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, (laughs) yeah. And again, even that character, which could be very easily written off as, as one note yep. has a lot of time and attention and empathy put into her. Mm-hmm. It, 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 you know, and, and that's, yeah, that's just the magic of this movie.
0: Yeah. It's, it's definitely, certainly of the top films I've seen this year. Uh, and uh, I would be surprised and lucky if it doesn't stay in my top five by the end of the year. Totally. Um, let's go ahead and discuss the film that opened last weekend, Robert Eggers' The Northman, and I'll let you sum this up.
1: It's Hamlet. It's Hamlet with Vikings. Yeah, you son of a bitch. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like, uh, uh, I have to explain, like, the whole world building of a sci-fi conceit it's like... <laughs> You know, and then you're just like, yeah, have you seen The Lion King? It's that, but super
1: violent. You offered. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, Yeah. I mean, if you need me to run down the story, um, uh, Amleth is a young Viking prince. His father is murdered in front of his eyes by his uncle. Mm-hmm. He is- narrowly escapes, grows to adulthood, and comes back for revenge. It's fucking Hamlet. It is It is the Lion King. It is... uh
0: Yes. Um, and I believe Amleth is the original Norse tale that inspired Shakespeare's Hamlet.
1: Yeah. So in Hamlet, he is a Danish prince. So it it, it is definitely like referencing this world, this world of um, you know, the land of the ice and snow. Right. Um, um,
0: and this this mostly takes place in in Iceland. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are, uh, some locations in Eastern Europe as well as, you know, the, at the time, um, that is when the Vikings were kind of occupying those territories. When we see, uh, the lead character, uh, Amleth played by, uh, Alexander Skarsgård when he's away from his, his home village, we even see him in like parts of Russia and stuff as they're, you know raping and pillaging across mm-hmm. the land. And I use those words very literally.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, so this is not like a uh, Lion King in that sense.
1: No. Yes. Very violent, very graphic. Uh, you know, this movie's also filled with Norse mythology. He meets witches. Uh, he meets Willem Dafoe is kind of a, this Rafiki like court jester and, Slash uh,
0: mysticist, yeah. yeah,
1: magic man, mm-hmm. uh, and then um, in his quest for revenge, as as an adult, he comes to his the usurper's land. He sells himself as a slave, uh, keeping his identity hidden. Um, and along the road, he finds another slave who seems to have some mystic powers. Uh, Olga, played by Anya Taylor Joy, who becomes his confidant and ally in, in his quest for revenge.
0: Right. She's kind of sleuthing um and picking up different information, and they sort of share it amongst themselves to to further infiltrate to get closer and closer to to this uh this Uncle King character that they want to, you
1: know, uh-huh. eventually. And kill. and he also uh not only does he want revenge, he also wants to save his mother, who uh you know, is being held captive as his queen, played by Nicole Kidman.
0: yes, what Ah uh, Clace Bang.
1: Yeah, which is um
0: the, the evil Uncle. And yeah, uh, he
1: was in the Netflix Dracula, the like three part miniseries. And oh, he's so fucking good in that. He he became my new favorite Dracula. Like he just absolutely was perfect for that character. So um, if you haven't checked out the Netflix Dracula miniseries, it's three parts. They're all like movie length. They did it kind of like, it was the BBC production. Um, They did it kind of like uh, the way they revamped Sherlock uh, with Benedict Cumberbatch. Highly recommend, especially around Halloween time, very, very much those vibes.
0: Um, And Ethan Hawk plays Amleth's original father.
1: Yeah. Uh, Um, King Arvindil.
0: Who you would not expect to see in a role like this. Uh, And he seems to be doing like this sort of like Christopher Lambert impression. (laughs) Um, But I was very here for it. Yeah. Um, and so was he, honestly. I mean, everybody in this movie, especially on a physical uh, level, is super committed.
1: Yeah, I mean, are we going to talk about the meat stacks that Alexander Skarsgård put on his body?
0: Right. Well, apparently he was very instrumental in getting this movie made, which I think yeah, he's I a producer. Yeah, I
1: guess he been a producer for like a decade or something.
0: Yeah, he wanted to do a Norse movie you
1: know a viking his name film is Scarsgard
0: right yeah i mean you know the swedish royalty of the scars um yeah. and he he's been wanting to do a film like this and he somehow met robert eggers you know that eggers was into historical films i guess initially robert eggers who had made the witch with anya taylor joy and uh the lighthouse with uh william defoe recently he was a little bit resistant to this type of material initially because kind of more action oriented, and he kind of saw like the Viking, the Vikings as sort of like just brutish meatheads, and you know he didn't want to like you know step on a third rail as far as like the like current association with with Norse mythology with like alt right yeah weird which stuff
1: is, they try to co opt this. Their imagery and, the, you know, the, the full fucking bullshit about the Aryan race, like, fuck, right, all right. fuck I mean Nazis that, forever.
0: Yeah. And, it, you know, they will co-opt anything, including, like, My Little Pony and anime. So Exactly.
1: Whatever. Which is why they don't get to have anything.
0: Right. Um, so for those reasons, uh, Robert Eggers was a little hesitant, but I guess his wife is also a historian of, of sorts and she was really into these Norse myths and stuff and when she heard that they he had taken this meeting with uh Skarsgård she's like okay well these are the things that I think you'll like and he fell in love with this story specifically um probably because he comes from a theater background and he's done a lot of Shakespeare
1: sure yeah
0: um and I think he saw the potential to you know the way he described it in interviews that I've watched is that it was it's a simple story that everyone knows so he doesn't have to worry about people keeping up he mm-hmm. could just focus in on the on the particulars that he's interested in which is the setting the period the mythology the mysticism the occult and all of that stuff that sort of dresses a story that you know the skeleton of we we certainly know
1: i really love this movie I, I mean, first of all, I just really loved this movie. Yeah, uh, this this
0: this is a, another banger.
1: Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, but I also really love this movie in Robert Eggers' canon of work. Mm-hmm. Because this was, I, and I mean, I've loved both of his, uh, the other movies I've seen, The Witch and um, The Lighthouse. And this was the movie where I was like, oh, I fucking get it. I, you know, I get it with the witch. I get it with the lighthouse, but mm. this is where I'm like, oh, these, I get exactly who he is now and what his obsessions are in storytelling and directing. I just think it it works really well of a piece with it, with those two movies.
0: Right. Yeah. It, it, it feels like a natural, a natural trajectory. It's, it's a much bigger movie. Than than his previous ones because those were most you know those were indie films made very small budgets and they were basically chamber pieces one location Mm -hmm. very small cast In this one we got extras all over the place we have lots of sweeping vistas and helicopter shots
1: we have big epic battle scenes epic battle scenes
0: almost all of I, I didn't really realize this while I was watching it um it wasn't until after that I kind of realized like how many of these battle scenes are all done in one take. Oh, which is, yeah. I mean, there's a few that you, that are, that are pretty show off. And you can definitely tell, but it seems to be sort of the language of the film is mm-hmm. to, to not cut all that much. There's a few, there's like some shot reverse shot stuff in the conversation set pieces, but in the action scenes, he kind of, he kind of likes to keep the camera, as steady as possible. And he uses, um, this, you know, this technique of, you know, coordinating these, these gigantic set pieces, which takes incredible work
1: and effort and, well, and if you fuck something up, you got to start over and well, and, and, and not to mention, even just the prep to make sure, yeah. you know, everything's safe. And, uh, right. And we're
0: talking about, um, you know, the worst conditions to do a oneer. You know, if you're Martin Scorsese and you're doing the Coca-Cabana, you know, yeah. the worst, worst thing that could happen is somebody comes in a frame too early or too late, or mm-hmm. somebody spills a glass of wine on the table and they got to redo that. In here, we're talking about mud. We're talking about outside. We're talking about animals. Rain, we're, lighting. Fire. Uh,
1: uh- Yeah, anything that can go wrong probably did on set. Yeah,
0: everyone's being splattered on blood, with blood the whole time. So, you know, you gotta, if, if somebody fucks something up, everyone's gotta get clean, and everyone's gotta get to that point and make up again to start right over. So, I mean, I can't imagine how painstaking a lot of these action sequences were to do, but they pay off in a big way because it creates this very different kind of cinematic language for this type of action movie it would be a lot well, easier just to do choppy cutty you know um you know punctuate every sword movement with uh with a cut and, and yeah yeah uh, you know we've seen that um time and time again and there, even- there was
1: um i, I there's a youtube video that was like i i can't remember what it was otherwise i would uh properly credit it might have been nerd rider i i don't know Mm -hmm. that i watched it was like a video essay of like a breakdown of action and they were comparing you know like a really exciting well shot action scene to i think it was one of the taken movies i can't remember again i can't remember exactly all all i remember is it was like seven cuts just for someone to jump over a fence right (laughs) and you know like broke down all seven cuts and and like how how much that Actually stops the action, and mm-hmm. um, I, I don't know. It was it was interesting, you know. Right. And There's I, a I, lot of cool video essays on stuff like this on on YouTube for sure, uh,
0: and it, it's a lot better with visual aid than than to try and describe it. And I should say that I don't I don't believe that necessarily one way is better than the other.
1: Uh, no, because you have um, to be you have to be good at either.
0: Yeah, and it has to be purposeful, and it has to be. Uh, appropriate for the story absolutely, absolutely. but and in, you could do this, this case... type of thing you could I, I mean famously when M. Night Shyamalan took on um the last airbender he wanted to do action scenes similarly in all one takes but it ended up feeling like a side scroller video game most of the time
1: because oh. <laughs> yeah I mean I never saw that one but yeah uh yeah exactly it's it, one there's, a, there's an only...
0: instance where that where that where that style did not work here. um, Everything, I know there's this very fluid glide to everything. So you don't even register most of the time that you're not getting the usual sort of coverage.
1: Well, the, the violence in this movie is very much a a language. It is like things are spoken through violence in a way that again, you don't see in sort of the traditional action film and in, in a lot of traditional action films, you know, the, the action set piece is just kind of a draw to get butts and seats. Mm. In this case, it is, it is literally like characters speak and, and progress through violence uh, in really interesting ways. Um, that being said, the violence is brutal as fuck. Oh yeah. If, if you don't jive with that, like I can see not, enjoying this movie.
0: (laughs) Right. I do, you know, for as brutal as it is, I do think that it is tasteful because I think there's a version of this you could do, you know, he definitely could have gone harder than he, than even this. That's true. And there, there are, because I was noticing when he didn't
1: like, I was noticing
0: when something, when he chose to do something out of frame instead of in frame.
1: For sure. Um, And, And again, it is intentional, you know, like, yeah, it's, there are thi- you know, it's not like it's just a big old gore fest where you see every gaping wound. It is yeah, masterfully done.
0: What I kind of picked up on is usually when you see the most brutal violence on screen, it's usually with a character that is more significant. Like if it's just an extra or something who comes into frame for a second, a lot of times he, he'll he kind of like move the camera quickly and you sort of imply the violence, but in, in the scenes where he's really one-on-one with somebody who really wronged him, or he felt very wronged by that person, then it's all in frame and it's, you know, the payoff is, is uh, pretty extreme. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I think it's interesting how he chooses to use violence. Um, Also, you know, Jaron Bla- uh, Blansky, who has, is his cinematographer and it's been working with him since his short film days. And, you know, both, you know, all three of his films, the witch, uh, the lighthouse and this movie are beautiful. Um, Oh my God. I love the way he shoots the night in this movie. And yeah,
1: well, yeah. So that's another thing. Um, uh, You know, as we saw in something as recently as the Batman, which is very dark, you know, mm-hmm. to the point where I'm like, I don't know if I'll be able to watch that at home if it's the daytime. Right. Uh, mm. This is, it's not dark in a sense of like just black on screen. It's not just, you know, the contrast is so well done and so well shot. Right. Uh, and a lot of it takes place at night. I mean, there's there's a kind of a story point where we we see a lot of the action at night and, you know, it's not just to hide choreography. Like, again, a lot of action movies can do um, because it's so well lit.
0: You know, there's a lot of times you can just bathe something in blue and sort of imply moonlight and, you know, keep everything lit well enough that you can register it. But here there's there's much more of a technique to it and there's much more of sort of a texture to you know the the contrasts and the blacks and and the shadow and all of that stuff. Like every single shot is just so well considered.
1: Yeah, ex- exactly. From the
0: opening shot, you know, and there's a lot of like with the actors. I noticed this. He was doing a lot of this like direct to camera stuff. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the actors will, you know, will have these sweeping crane shots. Or um, Dolly, or whatever they're doing, uh, that kind of glide through these through these set pieces, and then the the it'll sort of like present these these action scenes, and then uh, uh, you know the uh, the character that sort of lands on, sort of faces the camera and delivers dialogue to camera, which is very like for you know considering like Robert Eggers is so well known as. As the, I want to get everything period accurate and keep you in that period. Like that is a very stylistic, could be seen as theatrical way of doing something. And it Mm -hmm. is. But again, I feel like his, I feel like I feel his theater nerd here more than the other films. Even though those are probably easier to do on a stage. Here he's sort of embracing kind of a, a bigness and and a, um, a melodrama he was trying not to do in his other films.
1: Yeah, and, and I think, you know, I, I wouldn't disagree with you. I think there's a theatricality to this story. There's a theatricality to this culture. And that was another thing I really like about this movie was the way he weaves mythology uh, mm-hmm. into the story, the way he he weaves that culture to the point where I'm like, of course you would believe a demon is real. Mm -hmm. Of course you would believe in shit like werewolves. Uh, uh, You know, when you have these berserkers doing this theatrical transformation to get into the mindset of an animal Mm -hmm. and then acting like animals, like it, it, It is a transformation. He makes you feel these things uh, that that are, you know, mythological and magical and powerful. And he also shows you, it it dances this fine line of, I don't want to say it totally grounds it, because it's done in a way where you feel this magic. Mm -hmm. But it's also done in a way that feels relatable and historical.
0: Right. Yeah. Very much um, like his other films. You know, that is one of his obsessions is magical thinking versus, you know, the philosophic indifference to magic versus science in a world that doesn't know the difference between the two.
1: Yes, exactly. And yeah, and he he can portray it in a way that... uh... It's just fucking cool.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I love the way that he portrays the Norse stuff here. Um, even especially when like when it goes really outside the realm of, um, of, of,
1: uh, you know, grounded realities, we know it. Well, and, and, you know, I don't like it in movies typically when like a character has plot armor. You know, mm-hmm. that's a term that gets thrown around where like a character will survive a situation just because they have to get to the end of the movie or whatever. But in this, he uses plot armor as a storytelling device, as as intentional. As it does, this character have that, or is it fate, or uh, of like using this thing that I typically find very annoying and playing into that and playing into these superstitions and magic and using it as a deliberate tool uh, in a way that's not totally obvious. Mm-hmm.
0: There's also a, very, a really interesting discussion here um, when, uh, you know, him and his cohorts are uh, uh, enacting their revenge at night and it's sort of revealed in the morning to the king, you know, these acts of violence that are happening he's sort of like, he's sort of like building suspense and terror in, in his uh, opponent. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're sort of like poking around trying to figure out like, well, what is this? You know, is this, you know, and at one point they're like, they talk about Christianity in a very theoretical sense, like as this new thing. Yeah. And they're like, Oh, well, you know, it, it could be these people, they believe in a God that, that was nailed to a tree.
1: Yeah, they, you know, they, they believe speak- in a corpse god. like
0: Right. Yeah. And it, it, um, I, I, I think that is, that is Robert Eggers, <laughs> like, you know, to a T. Like, if you, you know, in one piece of dialogue, it kind of describes his, his approach to mythology and faith and a human sort of wrestling with that. That is yeah. it. That, you know, that's his, his little Bergman moment. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, It's great. I I think that I want to say I could be wrong because I like his other movies a lot. And I like, you know, a lot of movies that are like traditionally thought of as slow and boring. But I feel like this is probably his most entertaining movie outside of like an art house kind of. Yeah, I I feel like your average like Braveheart fan could get into this
1: absolutely it, it is artfully done but it's not so art house that it's it's going to cut itself off from a lot of uh yeah. audiences like i remember nicholas winding Refn. we you know we saw drive and uh that was a very pop sensible movie for someone who's uh typically very art artistic minded sure and You know, then I saw he had a a Viking movie. I think it came out before, maybe it was after. I can't remember. Uh, called Valhalla Rising. And I was like, Oh, yeah, you know, fucking Vikings. Yeah. And I saw it and I was like, What the fuck is even, you know, happening? (laughs) This isn't that. It's very straightforward. It's very, you know, I would say, even though it has all of his touches, it has all of his obsessions, it has all of his skill. It's, it probably does have the most broad appeal. um, I would think probably his most straightforward movie.
0: Right. And it helps that it's a familiar story. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. But I I also think that it helps that the movie, I feel like just is mostly, like you said, that they're, they they communicate largely by action. Yeah. So even in scenes where there's not, a war or a battle going on I mean the one of the best scenes of the movie In my opinion is where they're playing This stickball game yes. uh, Between the slaves And it is like The most brutally Violent game like Torture ever in fact It remi- reminds me and I Wonder if he referred to It in his research um, M- Marshall McLuhan The uh, Canadian philosopher He He uh, he wrote a lot about media and he wrote a lot about like, um, you know, media as being the extension of the body. And he he talked about sports as being a form of violence as entertainment.
1: Oh, sure. I mean, I, I don't think he's the only one who to make, you know, the connection of like modern day football to like the gladiatorial arena.
0: Right, yeah, and and here is it's yeah, it just takes that veneer of of uh, safety and and professionalism out of it completely.
1: It's both the idea of uh, you know I went to a, a fight and a hockey game broke out, and right. it, it, it satisfies both that competitive aspect and that bloodlust. Like it's you know there's a reason sports is a multi billion dollar industry
0: right and i mean even beyond like obvious things like boxing kickboxing UA UH, and ufc and all that kind of stuff um yeah I, I i love that scene sort of for for its simplicity but also sort of the as a as one of the few things that sort of ties that era with
1: our era yeah for sure because it you know it has sort of, the way the scene plays out is very similar to what you would see in any kind of sports movie. Right.
0: It just, the stakes are a lot higher. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And it's, it's done with all of the, you know, brutal violence that we've come to see so far. Right.
0: And, um, you know, originally as the movie's kind of going, I was appreciating all the things we're talking about. And I was like, yes, this is obviously a masterwork of sorts, Mm -hmm. especially technically but there was part of me that was like, okay, but it's Hamlet, you know, like am I, is it really doing anything much more than on a plot level or on a character level than what's archetype? And I would have almost knocked the movie for that. Not as a bad thing, but just Mm -hmm. as like, you know, on a story level, it's not as ambitious as some of his previous work. Sure. Um, But until we get to this pivotal scene and I don't want to spoil exactly what happens
1: in it. I know what you're talking about.
0: Yes. With uh, where Nicole Kidman gives us, you know, Oscar moment level one scene in this movie that Mm. flips everything we know about all of these characters on their head. And that's when it subverts the, the archetype stuff and actually makes it more interesting and more complex and more, um, self-aware than it than it appeared before that point
1: yeah there there is more to it than just you know the child prince gets revenge and, and gets revenge yeah. and tries to reclaim his kingdom kind of thing um, right and it,
0: and it and that at that point it it makes you question the film's internal philosophy about violence And about revenge. And, you know, is it, of course, that that Shakespeare wrestled with that throughout all of his tragedies. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, nobody ever got clean revenge in a Shakespeare tragedy. No,
1: because, you you know, he's (laughs) making the argument that such a thing does not exist.
0: Right. Um, And here it kind of doubles down on that idea. And I I think does so in a really poignant and interesting way. So, again, um, that's another A for me. Maybe an yeah. A- Um, but yeah, it's strong.
1: I I'm giving this a, a full A. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't cover the emotional spectrum that everything everywhere all at once does, but it's a very different movie. And I was no less satisfied by it. I just April's fucking around and might release my favorite, you know, my entire top 10 list of the year. Right.
0: I mean, I think honestly, we've had a very strong first quarter.
1: Yeah. The year. I I mean, I'm,
0: you know, both of these movies are great. I really like the Batman a lot. Kimmy, uh, you know, was, was a really surprising, like small uh, HBO thing. The turning red was really good. X was solid. Yeah. Yeah. X was really great. I'm, we've had a really good first third of the year
1: for sure. Let's hope, uh, you know, the, the trend rest continues of 2022 stays on pace uh, to deliver this fucking quality. Cause damn. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I mean, this movie is possibly the most metal movie I've seen in a long, long time in
0: a while. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I immediately was like, okay, I'm going to put on some Bathory, some enslaved, <laughs> and just like get on my, my black and war metal right now. That is uh, the Northman. Let's let's finish up here with the homework, which you assigned. This is Dirty Harry. And I was the one who had not seen this before. You you watched this.
1: Yeah, it's been a while, though. I saw it in, in college, you know, that we watched this in my film class.
0: Mm-hmm. So do you want to sum this up?
1: Uh, sure. Yeah, I guess. I guess since I got off easy with the Northmen, um, well, this one's, this one's not, not, not very difficult. Much uh- deeper. <laughs> yeah. Um. So there is a a sniper, uh, serial killer, terrorist, uh, terrorizing, uh, San Francisco, sniping random victims from rooftops and leaving. Uh, notes for the police, you know, where have we heard this before? No way this was inspired by real life events or anything. Sure. (laughs) Uh, Calling himself the Scorpio killer Mm -hmm. uh, and holding the city at ransom. So, you know, a little more straightforward than the actual Zodiac uh, in that he's supposedly doing all of this for money. Um, uh, But yeah, essentially the Zodiac killer but calls himself the Scorpio killer and uh tough, no nonsense, macho man's man, uh dirty Harry Callahan played by Clint Eastwood is put on the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so very seventies cop action drama.
0: Yeah. I mean, obviously I've known about this movie forever. It was on the list of shame. There's several sequels. Um, Although I don't know how any of them rank next to this one.
1: I, yeah, I, I'm i actually kind of curious about that as well. Um, yeah, it looks like none this- of
0: them are directed by the same person. This one's directed by Don Siegel, who you know was a person of note. He had done uh, uh, Escape from Alcatraz, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And this came out in 1971. So this is right when Clint Eastwood was really coming into his own.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, he was like right
0: after the man with no name movies. And he was
1: white hot at this point.
0: Yeah, this is, I think, really the movie that probably uh, most people kind of associate with him. It's basically his like Western archetype just set in modern day San Francisco or at the time modern day.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is interesting. And in a way, I think that kind of dates this movie more then the man with no name trilogy, Mm -hmm. um, because it very much plays by Western rules with not necessarily the traditional kind of Western villain, you know, in a, in a, uh, environment that isn't necessarily as conducive to that kind of, of attitude. And that's, you know, kind of largely what a lot of this movie is about is, you know, uh, like I said, he's sort of a no nonsense cop and, you know, all along the way of trying to catch this notorious killer, uh, there's bureaucracy and, you know, sort of politicking going on and, and uh, you know, rules that he has to play by. And when he doesn't play by them, it has consequences.
0: Some might call them laws.
1: <laughs> I know. Exactly. Which, <laughs> you know, that works in a wild west way uh it doesn't always work in a 70s san francisco way
0: yeah so it's really interesting to kind of look at this movie you know we talked about the last time
1: it's very interesting to watch it with 2022 eyes
0: well for sure yeah um but even in the context of comparing it to a movie like the devils which was released the same year um you know that's a movie really yeah 1971 i believe right but sort of the both of their approaches to violence Mm -hmm. and you know we talked about when we talked about the devils this this kind of idea of you know it fitting in with this certain type of 70s nihilism of like violence begets violence and that uh, that it um you know there's a there's this a lot of movies from that time period about sort of the mask; these masculine archetypes of the past, so like from the Westerns or from or from police procedurals or whatever, and sort of deconstructing them. This movie seems less interested in that. And is a it's almost more traditional in the sense that it's it is violent and is but its approach to violence is a lot more sort of black and white and it's like righteous violence.
1: Yeah. There's, right? like there's, it is,
0: there's no question as to who's re- who who deserves just cause?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, exactly. And that's you know, and that's a, a defining trait of the character is is, you know, he he is this arbiter of justice who is capable of dispensing violence uh, to the right people at the right time. And again, viewing it now is very different than watching it in college. Mm -hmm. Um, and there was some stuff that I did not fucking remember at all. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I would like to think I'm a little more mature since then, a little more socially aware. So I, I don't know that, that take was, uh, I don't know. It was interesting how, how much broader it was than I remember.
0: Yeah. You know, I think they're on a, on a genre level. On, you're just watching as an action crime movie. You know, it's well made, it's well shot. The acting is pretty good. Um, I mean, I've never been like the biggest Clint Eastwood fan, just in terms of his like delivery and that kind of stuff. I think he's, he can be used to good effect, but it's, he's not my go to for this type of thing. Um,
1: Yeah. And there's also, I I think he is one of those actors that, he got better um oh for sure he, you yeah. know like i think kind of the late 80s early 90s were probably his heyday as far as
0: well I would, I would say go even further i think he's a better director than a better than an actor for
1: sure i mean yes i do too. there there are sometimes i think he gets in his own way but um
0: oh well i mean <laughs> yes but, but generally but, but speaking yes, I, 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 that's where i, know I what you mean. I like him uh, behind the camera the, more
1: than in front. But in the 70s in particular, there's a little bit of detachment from him and his character. There's very much like uh you're you're watching a star in a star vehicle kind of thing.
0: Yeah, and people want to see Clint would just come and be a badass. And I think yeah. in like the Sergio Leone movies, again if we're comparing them, that kind of works fine. One because he doesn't talk a lot and two because those movies are so operatic anyway, and obviously not playing in reality. You know, it the, the spaghetti western style soaks up everything, but you can well, everything not, sort of suspended in inside sort of sort of a hyper realism.
1: Yeah, they're not also trying to make social commentary in the same way that this one is literally trying to make sometimes.
0: Sometimes, sometimes I feel like it's not but does not unintentionally. I agree. Um, yeah, so, you know, on an action movie level, on a, as a police procedural thriller, it's fine. Yeah, I think it still pretty much holds up. It moves, it's paced really well.
1: Well, th- um, I mean, this was one of the movies that helped kind of make the mold for the big cop action blockbuster.
0: Right, yeah, ac- absolutely.
1: This this was the transition from Westerns to, to cop stories.
0: Right, yeah. Um, You know, and television had a lot to do with that as well But yeah, mm-hmm. I agree Uh As, you know, on a philosophic level On a thematic level There's a lot of aspects to this that is pretty unsavory <laughs> yeah. And comes off as tone deaf now And I'm not going to be that guy who's like You know, like want to condemn the sins of the past based on the morals of the present day. No, but... Um, But, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in here that was just as bad then as it is now. It's just... It's not hard to
1: see... It's not hard to see a a very fascist reading of the character. Yes. uh, And how something like this could inspire a character like Judge Dredd, which was meant to be a commentary on... On that type of thing, uh, the sensationalism of American violence and, and gun culture and uh, might makes right, you know, like, it, yeah, it's very easy to, to make those conclusions. Um,
0: right. And I think I think more interestingly, when it comes to like movies of the 70s, I tend to sort of like that approach of of. I, I I like the anti-violent violent movies more than something like this about righteous violence. I and I think you you could actually take this character and just from a slightly skewed perspective, a couple of years down the road, not too far off from Travis Bickle, like yeah. you 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 give this guy uh, you know manic depression and put him in a cab. And it's basically the same life philosophy that they're living by. It's just one movie knows that. And the other movie doesn't.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. Uh, and I do think it's still possible to watch this movie and just, you know, kind of enjoy it for the genre stuff that it's doing. Yeah. Um, it's totally, I, it moves at a, a, at a brisk pace and it it's, and i and I
0: actually think it's on a technical level it's made pretty well i i was even you know kind of like impressed by some of the technique um well that, something that's at play here
1: so, so something i want to uh talk about in particular one of the reasons I wanted to watch this movie again mm-hmm. is um you know the connection to a, a fictionalized version of the zodiac killer as the villain uh, mm-hmm. and, you know we just saw this in. Uh, the Batman, um, the Matt Reeves Batman, where the Riddler is is definitely drawing in some inspiration from the Zodiac Killer, yeah, uh, and you know they kind of to similar effect do that here. And what I think one of the things that I thought was really interesting on rewatching this is like the opening sequence is almost identical to the Batman. Yeah, I mean some of the I, the particulars are changed, right? But like the first shot is we're seeing literally through the sniper's lens at the first victim. And I was, I don't know. I thought that was a really interesting way to A, introduce the new Batman and to introduce this movie as well. Uh, I also think it's interesting to use a serial killer, you know, real life, monster as sort of an action villain where typically when we pull from that uh, unfortunate inspiration um, it's done for horrific effect it's and and i mean it is a horror villain here but you know what i mean the, yeah the yeah, difference. yeah
0: yeah and i think that again that kind of plays into this idea of of you know the 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 view of masculinity that this movie takes um, like, say, compare this to something like Silence of the Lambs, right? Mm. For Silence of the Lambs, you're literally swapping out the protagonist for a female. You know, the the perspective completely flips. The entire relationship to the villain changes. And here it's, again, much more played like almost a traditional Western tropes of he's the bandit, the bad bandit that we got to get because he's kidnapped the blah, 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 you know?
1: Yeah, Um, exactly. Which I
0: don't think is like in and of itself a bad thing. Like that's a perfectly fine way to set up a a story. Um, But yeah, you can definitely tell the sort of the philosophical differences between how the serial killer. And again, like the serial killer as a phenomenon was just barely kind of becoming a known thing at this time
1: oh yeah like this is sort of when it started because this was like the the you know the beginning of the heyday of serial killers the 70s right was insanely rampant and this was 1971 this was before a lot of the most notorious killers would commit you know, some of their most heinous crimes.
0: Right. This is not too very long after Charles Manson was captured. Um, this was not very long uh, after the Zodiac or might even been, been between killings at this point.
1: Yeah. Because I think that's what you this movie in the movie Zodiac. Yeah. you At one point you
0: see um, Jake Gyllenhaal's character walk out of the movie. But yeah,
1: it's uh, and uh, as far as the, the... so that's it, it, an even more interesting aspect of it to me is you know it's not a it's not drawing from a, a complete knowledge of what's even happening and and it's a current event. Uh, right, so I think you know I think that's kind of interesting. Similar to the way if you think of the sort of action movies in a in a post nine eleven world when you know the sort of the immediate effect was. Uh, you know, a lot of fucking Middle Eastern terrorists as, as villains. I, I think that's kind of interesting as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what you were saying about the opening sequence and sort of the, uh, the, the sniper and sort of viewing things through the scope reminded me of, a, of this movie that Peter Bogdanovich did uh, that uh, Roger Corman, I think produced called um, targets uh it came out in 1968 so that's not too too much before this either mm-hmm. um and which is, is exactly that it's about this uh this killer who sets up at the top of buildings and randomly picks people out and uh plays around with this this notion of psychopathy um although that that movie was like super low budget and was a repurposed Carmen film with Boris Karloff in it and all sorts of stuff but um but yeah, I mean this is when we started to see more depictions of that because it was becoming more common as a news thing. Yeah, yeah. So as uh, a, you know, uh, yeah, as a as a historical piece, it's super interesting to look at. I liked it okay. I I it is hard to watch it now and go and root for Dirty Harry. If the movie wasn't asking me to as much, that wouldn't necessarily be a problem. But the movie really wants you to be on Dirty Harry's side, and and you know, rah rah. And I'm not on the serial killer side, but um, you know, like this idea that Miranda rights and the Fourth Amendment are a pain in the ass. Okay, I don't necessarily feel you on that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I it was a lot harder for me to just sit back and enjoy it mm. on this watch, this viewing. Um. I mean I still you know it still has some some f- pretty fun action scenes and set mm-hmm. pieces and stuff and there's you know some famous quotes and and things like that but um it was a little harder for me to get past I think if a movie is well made I so- I mean I agree with you and and you know I- and and not everybody can but I I am able of sort of separating my views from the thing I'm enjoying and and right um and it just it those things just stood out to me a lot more this time uh, because I'm a lot more aware of some issues that you know I wasn't back then. Um, right, and 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 certainly the
0: time and place in which you experience art is going to inform the way that you the way that you interpret
1: it. Absolutely. You know, I think some. Uh, I think a good chunk of it is like, you know, we just wanted a badass character to say cool shit and blow people away. Right. And yeah. on one level, my brain can appreciate that because he says some cool shit and he blows away some bad people. Yeah. On another level, I'm like, ooh, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. They're just. I I was more conflicted about it than I remember being, and, but I. I also appreciate that about it. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that it's it one of the cool things about movies. That's one of the cool things about art. It it changes as time goes on. Right. Uh, even though it stays the same.
0: And I, I would almost be interested, although I don't know if I'm personally invested enough, but I'd almost be interested to watch the rest of the sequels and see if that portrayal changes at any point, or you know, why it might or might not. Sure. Yeah,
1: I, um, I agree. As it enters I didn't like there's the, like, from
0: the 70s to the 80s and on.
1: I didn't realize that there was like five or six of these movies. Right. Um, yeah. I I've always thought it would be really interesting through a streaming homework to kind of go through a series of movies, and I, I don't know if this is necessarily the one I want to follow, um, but I, I think that would be kind of a cool thing to do at some point. Is just like see how you know us characters evolve over sort of a longer storytelling uh uh time and you know it, it especially in a pre-mcu universe mm-hmm. uh pre-mcu world i think that could be an interesting experiment to do at some point um but yeah o- overall i i still think there's enough here with dirty harry to be entertained it's you know it's a watchable movie uh, yeah.
0: In fact, you but, probably have watched it,
1: <laughs> <laughs> but it is, I, I do think it is easy to get distracted by some of these bigger things at, at times.
0: Right. And, and even if you're not distracted by those things, um, maybe you should be like, sure. if you're, if you watch this at base value and you're over the age of 15, you should maybe look at it again and think about it in some other ways Um, and that's you know that's all criticism is it's not about you know putting things in the good pile or the bad pile or whatever it's about discussing art on its own terms and breeding discussion and discourse
1: yeah I mean that that's one thing that you know is has always been kind of frustrating about the sort of aggregation is that a word? Nope. It is. Sure. It is. Uh, the, the way we sort of, um, have to numerate our experiences, uh, right. uh, you know, like the, the rotten tomatoes effect, uh, right. Everything has a, a, a score. percentage now, and, and, you know, we yeah. do it, we do it on this show. We give, uh, new movies, a letter grade. Um, mm-hmm. but, but that's not really what it's about. Uh, uh, I hope not.
0: And that, you know, the reason I started doing the letter grade is because I know some of these conversations get long and unwieldy. And by the time you get to the end of them, the an audience might be like, they like it or not. I can't tell. So if I just say, blah, 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 blah. I give it a B then you're like, Oh, okay. (laughs) Um, But uh, because there's always going to be an asterisk. So there's always going to be a, you know, a tangent to go into or whatever, but um, you know, that's, I hope that the letter grade is not what you're fixating on because that's the least important thing of what we're doing here.
1: Yeah, and uh, I think that's a good place to wrap this up unless you have any final thoughts on uh, Dirty Harry. I think... I do not. Yeah.
0: I do not. The next homework we are going to do is uh, on Amazon Prime. It is the uh, 2002 film... Uh, 24-Hour Party People, starring Steve Coogan. It chronicles the uh, creation of Factory Records, the famous indie label from the from Manchester that put out a lot of the, uh, you know, Madchester Britpop bands from the early 90s. Um, a movie I've always meant to get to. We'll be talking about that. And if anybody has anything to say about any of the movies that we talked about on this episode or previous, You can contact us at our email, mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also contact us at at mcguffinpod on Twitter or on Instagram. You cannot contact me on Twitter uh, because I don't have an account anymore, but you can still follow me on Instagram at bccassidy. All I really do is show my record collection there, but who knows, maybe I'll broaden that out a little bit. Um, And... Uh, please leave us a star rating and a one sentence review on iTunes or Spotify, Google podcasts, whatever podcatcher you use to listen to us, bump us up in that algorithm uh, and be sure to read the other reviews and articles by the rest of the MacGuffin staff at MacGuff.in.
1: Yeah. And you can follow me on Instagram at Keith Foster kid and my art account on Instagram at sticky note aesthetic. Uh, I still technically have my Twitter account, but fuck it. Who cares?
0: That's the episode.
1: And typically uh, I end the episode with a quote uh, from one of the movies. And it was kind of hard to pick one because all of these movies were very quotable. Mm -hmm. So I went with this because I think it kind of sums up the larger conversation we had here today. You think because I'm kind that it means I'm naive and maybe I am. It's strategic and necessary. This is how I fight.
0: Bye.